Good afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Opinion. My name is Father Anthony Sumich, a priest of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. I'm hosting the show as I have been over the last four years. So let's begin today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So, as I said before, my name is Father Sumich of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter at Society of Apostolic Life, working in the diocese, Catholic Diocese of Auckland, New Zealand, under the invitation of Bishop Patrick Dunn. And we bring the traditional Latin Mass and all of the sacraments to those faithful who find themselves liturgically attached to the beauty and magnificence of the traditional Latin Mass here in the Auckland Diocese. We have a website which you can look up and find out about a lot of our uh, day-to-day information and the work that we do. We are based in Tiaratu uh, in Auckland and say our Sunday Masses, however, in Ponsonby at St. Paul's College Chapel. You can find all this information out on our website, which is fssp.nz, fssp.nz, or our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. So... Obviously, this Sunday we have Trinity uh, Sunday right on us, and then the traditional calendar of the church, Corpus Christi, follows after Trinity Sunday on the Thursday. So that will be this coming Thursday, six days from now, and we will be having that Mass. Our Corpus Christi Mass is an evening Mass, uh, an evening Mass at St. Paul's College Chapel in Ponsonby. So that Mass will begin at 7 o'clock, and at the end of the Mass, we will keep our Lord on the altar and begin a procession uh, with the Blessed Sacrament out if weather is allowing us out around the streets in a candlelit procession around the streets of the suburb of Ponsonby for a good 15 to 20 minutes while our Lord is held in the monstrance and carried under a canopy. So please come along if you're interested in joining in a beautiful Catholic tradition of the Corpus Christi procession as it is almost winter here in New Zealand. Uh, It will be dark, of course, at that time of evening. And so we'll be walking around before coming back into the chapel and giving benediction of uh, the Blessed Sacrament. So welcome along. If anybody wants to come along, please do so. And come and join us uh, withholding, upholding the traditions of the patrimony of our beautiful faith. So over the last four years, I have been talking about the history of the Catholic Church and am going to continue doing so today. Last week we finished with the uh, incredible story of the Hussite Revolution, which sort of lost its shape um, just because the theology started to get pretty muddled. But the courage of the Hussite armies, especially um, their leader, One-Eyed Jack, who not only had one eye, but eventually ended up losing that in battle and became entirely blind, but was still able to defeat Um, Catholic princes and especially Emperor Sigismund who was trying to put an end to the revolution so um, we joined this in January of 1422 whereby Emperor Sigismund although 
he had been outclassed in the field by his great opponent, matched him in perseverance and energy. Within six months, Emperor Sigismund was planning a new crusade against Bohemia with the active encouragement of Pope Martin V's legate, Cardinal Branda. He could hope to benefit from increasing dissension among the Hussites, who by the year 1422 had divided into no less than three factions. The more conservative Utraquists of Prague, now supported by a prince brought in from Poland, Sigismund Kuribut, the radically revolutionary Taborites, mainly concentrated in southern Bohemia, Bohemia and the Orobites of northern Bohemia, led by a priest, Ambrose of Hradek, whose theological position lay somewhere between the first two. So, eventually, this generally happens to most uh, groups who do not have over them one central control of theology. One-Eyed John, a longtime friend of Ambrose, was drawn to the Orobites and broke with the Taborites. In October of 1423, the Utraquists and the Taborites went to war against each other, though a truce was soon made while they held an elaborate debate on the issue of ritual investments. By August, an Utraquist army from Prague felt strong enough to attack One-Eyed John himself. They met at a place called Strachov Dor. Hussite armies habitually carried an ark into battle containing consecrated hosts. On this occasion, both armies had arcs. One-Eyed John was so furious that anyone would carry an ark into battle against him that he had the priest-bearer of the Utraquist ark brought before him after he had won the inevitable victory. And in a nightmarish scene, the blind general, presumably after having the terrified priest immobilized, swung his iron-spiked battle club and bashed out his brains. Dear, dear. Meanwhile, in March of 1423, Duke Witold of Lithuania, Jagiello's brother, had ordered Prince Sigmund Kuribut, a relative, out of Bohemia, declaring that he would stand with the Roman Church, with King Sigismund, with the other Catholic princes and with the whole of Christendom, and will help them in, his, in their fight against the Bohemians. King Jagiello made essentially the same declaration one year later, removing all hope for outside help for the Bohemian Hussites. One-Eyed John fought his last great battle in June of 1424 at Malashov, east of Prague, against the Prague Hussite army, placing his war wagons on a flat-topped hill and then filling some of them with stones and rolling them down the hill, followed by an artillery barrage and a charge. It was a tactical masterpiece by a general who could not see. Catholics and Hussites in Bohemia then made a six-month truce, while One-Eyed John led an army of 20,000 to conquer Moravia, the first major offensive operation outside of Bohemia. At the border, he suddenly fell ill and died on October the 11th. His men, convinced there could never be another commander like him, remained an independent military force calling itself the orphans. During the ensuing seven years, until negotiations for a comprehensive religious settlement at last began at the Council of Basel in 1431, the pattern of the Hussite wars continued. Sharp internal conflicts among the Prague Utraquists, the Taborites and the orphans allied with the Orobites, but with most of the three coming together whenever a new crusade was launched against Bohemia. The Taborites developed an effective military leader 
in the priest Prokop called the Shaven, though, though he would never be another one-eyed John. The Taborites and the orphans made deeper penetrations into the territories from which the Crusades were organised, Austria, Hungary, Silesia, Lusatia and central Germany. Periodic negotiations with Emperor Sigismund also wrecked on the rock of a continuing Hussite refusal to accept the authority of the Catholic Church, either Pope or Council. New Crusades would then be launched, but again and again they failed. The last of them, conducted in 1431, was the most humiliating. Ceremony launched by Cardinal Cesarini, already designated leader of the new Council of Basel, which solemnly invent, invested Frederick, Elector Frederick of Saxony with banner and sword in the church of St. Sebald in Nuremberg on June 29. The crusading army was large in numbers, but low in morale and poorly led. Wandering in the forests on the eastern slope of the mountains ringing Bohemia early in August, it became even more disorganised. Near the town of Domaglice, a quarrel broke out between Cesarini and Elector Frederick, whom the Cardinal finally accused of treason to Sigismund. In the midst of this, the Taborites under Prokop the Shaven attacked. With war wagons rumbling, singing the Hussite battle hymn, Ye Warriors of God, routed by the singing and the rumbling alone, the German army fled, even without a fight. One-Eyed John was seven years dead and probably few of the Germans at Domzlitze had ever met him in combat. But the rumble of his wagons had become the stuff of legend and those who commanded them fought by his battle plan. One-Eyed John was still winning victories beyond the grave. The Hussites could not be overcome by military force. Christendom had not regained enough, enough health from the near disaster of the Great Schism to mount a successful crusade. Nor did the methods many of the Catholic leaders had used in Bohemia deserve a victory. Shrewd diplomacy, taking advantage of the Hussite divisions and greater flexibility were needed. The church could always grant communion in both kinds to Bohemia at any time. The time had come at least to put it on the bargaining table. As if these second and third decades of the 14th century had not already brought achievement and peril and drama enough, they were also the setting for a deathless story unique in the annals of Christendom. The brief but ever-glorious career of St. Joan of Arc, or, as she always called herself, Jeanne la Pucelle, Joan the Maid. St. Joan's mission began in 1428. Her supreme triumph was gained in 14... She was martyred in 1431. To grasp the political and military situation in France from the devastating defeat at Agincourt in 1415 until those years is essential in understanding what she was called upon to do and what she achieved. Henry V of England determined to rule all France as he claimed the right to do, kept up the military pressure after Agincourt. In January of 1419, he took the large city of Rouen, capital of Normandy. On September the 10th of that year, Duke John the Fearless of Burgundy called to a conference with Dauphin, Crown Prince Charles at the bridge of Montereau near the confluence of the Seine and Yon Rivers was murdered there 
with the knowledge, if not the actual participation, of the Delphin. John's grief-stricken 23-year-old son, Philip, inherited the dukedom of Burgundy, now including a continuous strip of land from modern Belgium to the heart of France, with an angry determination to avenge his slain father. The shrewd Henry V moved immediately to take advantage of this. His envoys told Duke Philip that he intended to force the Dauphin aside, marry mad King Charles VI's daughter, Catherine, and have himself proclaimed heir to the mad king and regent until he should die. If Philip agreed to this, Henry promised to punish the murderers of his father. If he did not, Henry would make war upon him to the finish. He gave Philip's two weeks to decide, and Philip accepted his terms. Early in March 1420, the English won another major victory at Frenet-le-Vicomte near Le Mans, killing 3,000 French and capturing their commander, Marshal Vieux. In May of that year, the pathetic Charles VI agreed in the Treaty of Troy to everything Henry V demanded. Consenting to his marriage to his daughter Catherine, recognising him as, the, as his heir and regent to bring into uh, being a perpetual union of England and France, with Delphine Charles to get nothing at all. Henry married Catherine in June. In December, the Estate General met in Paris and ratified the treaty, following which Henry V of England sat beside Charles VI of France as a joint royal court which pronounced Dauphin Charles an accessory in the murder of Duke John of Burgundy and condemned him to death in absentia for it. In January of 1421, Charles VI formally disinherited this last survivor of his sons. In December, a son was born to Henry V and Catherine, named for his father as Henry VI of England and Henry II of France. He would reign over both countries. Though about a third of France, the central region and Languedoc in the south, remained loyal to the Dauphin, the English were far better led and now had a strong juridical claim to rule France, as well as preponderant military power. In August of 1422, Henry V suddenly died at the age of only 35. On his deathbed, he named the older of his two brothers, John, Duke of Bedford, regent for the baby king, the youngest person ever to come to the throne of England, and Cardinal Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, tutor for the boy. Both were strong and able men, and under Bedford, there was every reason to believe that France would still be secured. The English army was the best in Europe at the time, excepting only one-eyed John's checks. Bedford was a commander of dogged determination and had under him two generals of real ability, the Earl of Salisbury and Lord John Talbot. Though the loss of their famous and highly capable king was a major blow, the English retained the advantages he had given them and under Bedford's leadership were not likely to lose them. Furthermore, just a few months later, the tormented Charles VI of France died, leaving baby Henry his designated heir. The English proceeded quickly to demonstrate their military superiority by winning new victories at Cravon in July of 1423 and at Verneuil in August of 1424. 
The French lost 2,500 more soldiers at Cravon, so weakening their army that only a large force of Scots who had come to help them enabled them to fight another major battle as soon as the following year. Vernet was an even greater disaster. The French lost 1,500 more and almost the entire Scots contingent of 6,000 was cut down, including Archibald, Earl of Douglas, grandson of the great Sir James the Black Douglas, the beloved and ever-faithful comrade of Robert the Bruce. After Vernet, there was no French army in the field until Joan the Maid appeared. And Charles VII, though by heredity the rightful king of France, timid and fearful, doubting his own paternity, remained uncrowned, a spectacle of weakness and irresolution. Against all odds, and primarily as a result of the long and tragic reign of the mad King Charles VI, it appeared very likely that the smaller but more aggressive country of England would absorb the larger but beaten France, creating a united nation which by its size and power would unquestionably dominate Europe for decades or even centuries to come. It was at this point that Joan the Maid appeared upon the historical scene and saved France. In the summer of 1425, in the garden of her father Jacques, one of the most prosperous of the small farmers in the village of Domremy in Lorraine, 13-year-old Joan heard a voice and saw a brilliant light. As she later testified at her trial, she knew immediately that the voice and the light were sent by God and that the beautiful, clear voice was that of an angel. Later, she identified him as St. Michael. At first, he spoke only of the need to follow God's law, to seek and practice goodness and attend church regularly. Again and again, he appeared to her, eventually coming daily or even more frequently, and she saw him with the eyes of my body. Though not clearly perceiving his bodily form, to be expected when viewing a purely spiritual uh, being, Soon St. Michael began to speak of a mission God was giving her to go to France, the centre of the kingdom, which was in great misery. He told her that two of the most venerated women saints of the Middle Ages, Margaret and Catherine, would soon appear to her also, and they did. She would embrace all of them around the legs, which she could touch and feel. She wanted to be with them always. So over the next three years, the instructions to Joan from the Archangel Michael and the saints became more and more specific. She must go to Charles VII and see him crowned as King of France. She must inspire his soldiers to fight better, even lead them in battle. No one else would do it or could. God had chosen her, chosen as so often in his dealings with mankind, the weak to shame the strong. Specifically, she must go to the king's representative in the nearest large town, Vaucouleur, the knight Robert de Baudricourt. In May of 1428, she went. Baudricourt heard her request to be sent officially to the king with incredulity and scoffing and said her father should box her ears. Her voices told her she must try again. Not only was this the mission God sent and necessary, however improbable it might seem, but it must be completed by the following year. In January of 1429, she went back to Vaucouleur 
and Baudricourt turned her down again. One of Baudricourt's knights, Jean de Metz, asked her what she thought she was doing and she answered him, quote, I have come here to the royal chamber to speak to Robert de Baudricourt so that he may take me or have me taken to the king, but he does not care about me or my words. Nonetheless, before mid-Lent, I must go to the king even if I have to walk my feet off to my knees. No one else in the world can restore the kingdom of France, nor will the king have any help except from me. Although I would rather stay with my poor mother, for this is not my station in life, but I must go and I must do this because my Lord wants me to do it. Unquote. Her absolute sincerity convinced Jean de Metz and he told her he was willing to escort her to the king. But neither of them could go without Baudricourt's permission. The parish priest at Vaucouleur, who knew Joan, vouched for her goodness and piety. For the first time, she told Baudricourt about her voices and he was sufficiently impressed to send a messenger to Charles VII's court at Chinon in the Loire region, asking if he might send Joan to them. Someone there agreed that she might come. On February the 12th, returning from a visit to the Duke of Lorraine at Nancy, whom she greatly impressed, Joan told Baudricourt that the French had suffered a severe defeat at the hands of the English that day. When news was brought several days later that the English had indeed prevailed at the Battle of Rouvray on February the 12th, bringing a large supply train to support their siege of the strategically placed city of Orléans on the Loire, almost at the geographical centre of France, Baudricourt was convinced. He sent her to Chinon with his blessing and an escort led by Jean de Metz. For greater safety on the journey, she donned men's clothes, which she was henceforth to wear until her death. On March the 9th, Joan arrived at Chinon Castle, Charles VII decided to receive her incognito, but she knew his true identity at once and held a private conference with him in which she convinced him immediately and completely of her supernatural powers by telling him a secret known only to him and to God. Probably specific elements of a prayer that he had offered that God would assure him of his own legitimacy, which he and others doubted because of his father's madness and his mother's reputed promiscuity that he alone rather than his whole country should be punished if the troubles which had come upon France were due in any way to his sins, and that God would forgive the French people if it was their sins which had angered him. As Victoria Sackville-West points out in her detailed and very irrational analysis of the often discussed secret, Charles could have seen nothing supernatural in a mere assurance by Joan of his legitimacy but most certainly would have seen it in her knowledge of specific details of a private prayer. So with the favour of her king supporting her, Joan the Maid could now unfurl her banners. On March the 22nd in 1429, she sent this letter to the Duke of Bedford. Quote, Jesus, Mary, King of England, and you, Duke of Bedford, calling yourself Regent of France, William de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, John Lord Talbot, and you, Thomas Lord Scales, calling yourselves lieutenants of the said Bedford, 
deliver the keys of all the good towns you have taken and violated in France to the maid who has been sent by God, the King of Heaven. Go away. For God's sake, back to your own country. Otherwise, await news of the maid who will soon visit you to your great detriment. I have been sent by God, the King of Heaven, to drive you body for body out of all France. If you will not believe the news sent you by God and the maid, wherever we will find you, we will strike you. Unquote. So it was not so much the language of this letter that was unique, extraordinary though it was. Fanatics and madmen and madwomen have written such letters throughout history. What was unique about this letter from Joan the maid was that she not only meant every word of it, but carried out every word of it. All that she said she would do, she did. All that she warned would happen, did happen. Joan the Maid in 1429 turned the tide of the Hundred Years' War in France. And in 25 years, the English had been entirely driven out, except for Calais, and they lost that a hundred years later. Not everyone among supporters of Charles VII yet believed in Joan. There were questions and doubts, including doubts about the source of her revelations. She was examined by a commission of churchmen at Poitiers, including two bishops, the confessors of the king and queen, and several famous masters of the University of Paris and Orléans. They pronounced her to be of irreproachable life, a good Christian, possessed of virtues of humility, virginity, honesty, and simplicity. Charles VII also consulted the famous theologian Jean Gerson, who had been a leader at the Council of Constance and performed a last service for this church and his country. He was to die later that year, aged 66. By describing Joan as good, divinely inspired, and worthy of leading the king's armies, and pointing out that the biblical prohibition on wearing clothing of the opposite sex, which Joan's critics were already against her, did not forbid women to wear men's clothing for military purposes, citing Esther and Judith. The Bishop of Embrun pointed out that God might well have chosen a peasant girl to save France in order to humble the proud who had been unable to do so. So on April the 27th, with the church's approval as well as her kings, Joan the Maid set out to make good her warning to the Duke of Bedford and the English invaders with an army of about 4,000, commanded by the young Duke of Alençon, who had become her ardent admirer and advocate. Her leadership endowed that army at once with a unique character. Oaths were no longer heard. The usual camp followers were dismissed, and the army marched, chanting psalms. The English had besieged Orléans since the preceding October, but were not strong enough to invest the city completely. Joan entered the city at 8 o'clock on the evening of April 29, riding a white horse in full armour with a famous battle standard in her hand, representing Jesus holding the words, world in his hand, and an angel kneeling on each side of him, and the words, Isus Maria, and a scattering of fleur-de-lis. She was hailed rapturously by the people of that besieged city. Her reinforced army was in the city by May the 4th as word came that a strong English force, English force commanded by Sir John Falstolf, the victor of Rouvray in February, was on the march for Orléans. Joan, napping, was roused from sleep by her voices telling her to go at once into battle. 
Not sure at first whether they meant that she should march against Falstaff or attack the besiegers' forts near the city. She opted for the latter. Sprang on her white horse, galloped through the streets with such verve that the horse's shoes struck sparks from the pavement and led the soldiers in a charge against the English. English held Fort St. Louis that nothing could stop. They stormed it almost without pausing for breath, killing three quarters of the garrison. Joan mourned the English dead, remembering that they had died on the vigil of the Ascension, and reminded her soldiers to confess and give thanks to God for their victory and to touch nothing in the church of St. Luke within the fortress. So, uh, with this great uh, saint and her battle with the English and trying to free France hotting up, we will pick this up next week and uh, go through the story of the great Joan of Arc Arc, and read a little bit, sorry, learn a little bit more about uh, her life, her death, her trial, and some of the other controversies that followed her around. But for now, we will conclude with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So, thank you everybody uh, for joining us, and... We hope that you can come along and join us next week. Remember that all the details of our apostolate are on our website at fssp.nz or on our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. So I hope you have a pleasant holy weekend, a holy feast of the uh, the Most Holy Trinity. Remember the uh, candlelit procession for Corpus Christi at St. Paul's College on Thursday night at 7 o'clock. And we hope to see you at church on Sunday or have you tuning in with our show next week. God bless you all and goodbye.